if you're feeling in the mood to do the, the, the rag alba, I think we've got everything going here because I can see the meters going up and down. Pete, I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah, say when it. I'm talking, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I say that, yeah. And that's oh, yeah, you've got a sound up there. And that so we'll get going, Bernie. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it were a very good question with that about uh, Rag Albert, actually, Bernie, because a lot of people used to ask me, how did you get the name? And and it, it wasn't a name that I'd, throw, I'd thought up as a name for a band or anything. What it was, I used to work with a load of blokes. And uh, one of them, Alan Copes, if you asked him a question and he didn't know it, all I said, oh, Rag Albert. And there were another bugger there, ne Neville Duxbury. If you, if you spoke to Neville, uh, you were a proper nutter, you know, and, uh, and he'd answer, London. <laughs> like that, do you yeah. see? And uh, so how it happened uh, was... I was playing at the Burnley Blues Festival when this when this thing about Rag Albert come up, yeah, and and Cliff Stocker, who'd uh, booked us for this uh, venue in uh, the Mechanics Institute, mm -hmm. which was quite a big venue, we probably held a thousand people, and uh, but anyway, Rag Albert was a, a rag and bone man. Oh. And, uh, yeah, he was a, a rag and bone man and he used to go around the street shouting and all kids used to take piss out of him and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, trying to shout after him. He'd turn around and say, booger off. <laughs> you know? But they'd follow him round as he went from house to, uh, well, he used to go on the street and then he'd stand at the end of the street for a minute to see if people had come out with anything for him. Yeah. But I have heard people shout of him on town and they've said to uh, Albert, call down at our house. I've got some stuff for you, will you? All right, oh, I'll be down this afternoon, you know. Okay. And everybody knew this guy, but nobody knew his last name. Oh. And I, I never knew his last name until uh, I was, I borrowed a, I borrowed an album. Uh, I borrowed a, a painting, sorry, mm. uh, off John Stanley, who just lives uh, at the end house. Yeah, you showed me. You showed oh, me that. But these, yeah, where he lives, and John Stanley had bought a beautiful painting from Edith Towler, who uh, I used to go out with her daughter years, uh, you know, years and years when we were kids, about sixteen. Uh, yeah. Something like that. And uh, she was a fantastic painter. And how she started painting was as a therapy because she uh, had a nervous breakdown. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and some it takes something like this sometimes to bring, as you know, to bring something out of somebody. And she took up painting. Right. And she was absolutely fantastic at she used to draw dogs and and things like that, and she'd get a dog in in uh, in her house and sort of pose it where she wanted to do, and she'd take a fantastic photograph of it, mm. and then she'd paint off the photograph, and the colours were just amazing. You 
when she'd finished burning, she, you couldn't tell whether it was a photograph uh, or an actual painting of the dog. It was so, so good. So realistic. She, she, did, she did one of Albert, because he was a character in town, and, and he, uh, he posed for a couple of photographs for her, and then she painted him. Mm. And uh, I used him... Without using his name, I used Albert's face because it had such a lot of character in it. I used it for five CDs, <laughs> which I've none left now. And I used it in the natural colour and I used it in a black and white colour, which you could change on a computer. I even had it as a ghost-like figure as well. Mm. Uh, very very in the background in a grey sort of thing. And, uh, but anyway, uh, as I say, he was a character, was Rag Albert. One of his favourite tricks was uh, in the pub, because he'd very little money, I don't suppose. He used to live in an N house, oh, in an great. M pen, did Albert, and he were only about five foot tall. Mm. And he used to go into the pub and probably buy a jill. Half a pint, you know, a jill. Ah, and yeah. uh, and there'd be somebody in who'd say, "Hey, Albert, show us, show us your party trick with supping a pint upside down." You oh. know, supping a pint upside down. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Yeah. If I'd have tried it, I'd have been bloody wet through. You know, exactly. Or anybody else, but but Albert could uh, stand on his head. And he'd drink a pint, actually drink a pint, in in a matter of a couple of seconds, upside down. That's he, amazing. He said he'd no clacker. <laughs> whatever, whatever your clacker is, uh, he hadn't one, they said. And it just used to go down as though you were throwing it into a, a, dust, uh, a bucket or whatever. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and to see it, to see it, and, and you know, and it, it, people used to buy him, buy him pint after pint after pint for this, you know, for doing his uh, party trick. Yeah, I can imagine. And did he used to wear a cap, Pete? Oh, yeah, he always wore a flat cap, did Albert, and he always wear a suit. He wore a suit, like a... a where the hell he got him from, I don't know, to fit him at this size. But he always wore a three-piece suit, you know, trousers, jacket, waistcoat, and a tie. Yeah. And uh, to do his job as a, as a rag-and-bone man. Because when you talked about him in the past, Pete, I've, I imagined somebody wearing a raincoat, a flat cap on, and I I imagined him being about 50 years old. Was that how old he would have been at that well, time? Well, I, I were a kid, but Albert always looked old to me. He always looked an old man to me, did Albert. Even uh, he lived in a little back-to-back -back weaver's cottage on uh, Garden Street. These cottages were only a, a living room downstairs with a probably a small kitchen and a bedroom upstairs and yeah. what they used to do they used to uh, these houses were completely back to back the the house at the back of him was exactly the same yeah and they used to uh, 
they used to let, lend themselves out to weaving companies and stuff like that. Mm. I remember you back talking. To back, back to back houses and uh, the, you know, there'd be a single woman or a single fella at the back of him and, and, and they'd lend themselves out to weaving companies at that time. But that faded away and a lot of them got knocked into one. Yeah. The, the you know, the dividing wall got knocked into one. And they made very, very nice-looking houses, actually. But mm. they were on a little terrace row. And uh, and Albert had his photograph taken outside his little house probably uh, a few, quite a few times because he was sort of a novelty, was uh, Albert, besides his character thing that he had. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and... And as as I say about these guys on the building site, Corpse, if you asked him a question and he didn't know or he didn't want to be bothered, he'd just say, Rag Albert. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was something that stuck in my mind a bit, as you can imagine, as a, as a young 18, 19-year-old boy. Yeah. And, uh, and anyway... Getting back to the name of Ragal, but how, how I come to name a band from him, as I said, I, I had had a few CDs out uh, with his name, uh, with his picture on, but there was never a, a name, like, you know, showing you it was Ragal, but telling you it was Ragal. And um, what had happened, uh, a few weeks before this band became Rag Albert, we'd been doing some great gigs with uh, Chris Lewis, a, a great drummer, as uh, as I've told you before, and uh, <clears throat> and also uh, the Mad Professor Ian Alveston, who died about five six months ago, mm. and Scott Whitley, a fantastic bass player. Was Scott? He could play electric bass, and he could play the upright bull bass as we used to call them and uh, and it could do all this tapping on the electric bass and it, it gives lessons you can see on youtube where it gives lessons and he's also brought several basses out oh yeah all different types uh, and the and they'll all be uh, the pickups will all be wired in different ways so that he gets different sounds and uh, and he now is now playing for uh, the Scottish band Big Country. Country. Yeah, yeah, and uh, very clever player. Um, and Scott used to come and turn up probably sometimes with his bull fiddle and play the bull fiddle all night. Mm. Well, what happened one weekend was uh, Al Weston. The mad professor rang me up and said, uh, "Do you fancy doing an acoustic night, Pete?" And I said, "Well, you know me; I'll have a go at out." And uh, so Chris Lewis turned up, and Scott Whitley, mm -hmm. and Al Weston turned up with his uh, Takamini uh, acoustic guitar, and I turned up with my acoustic guitar, and. Uh, we were doing this gig in a pub called the Greyhound. And so we went in there at about...
past seven in the evening mm-hmm. to set the gear up. Because, as you know, with acoustic guitars, it can be a bit finicky. Yeah. For feedback and one thing or another. And you can imagine a, a bull fiddle having a bit of feedback. But yeah. Scott uh, was a, a very clever lad with stuff like that. Mm. And uh, anyway, we... We started out at about quarter to eight at the night, playing everything that we normally played with acoustic guitars, rock and roll, Rolling Stones, Beatles, you name it. And we played it. Yeah. R&B. And we did a full night of, uh, of this acoustic music. Nice change. There was, uh, there was hillbilly music in it. There was R&B and there was a lot of uh, the old black music in it. And uh, we went through this night and uh, and we really enjoyed it. And, and the punters there enjoyed it. But they, didn't, they weren't used to seeing anything like that. No. They were used to the screaming heavy rock guitars and... And and I, I I've always been a little bit critical about uh, blues bands because they're not really blues bands. They to me they're just heavy rock bands that play blues. Yeah. And uh, I once walked out of a Walter Trout gig in uh, Corn in Lancashire. And, uh, and and as I was walking, uh, I, I listened to this stuff for about half an hour and I, I thought, no, uh, my ears don't need bending so much. Mm. And uh, I was walking out and I was walking towards my car, uh, which is on a big car park, and I walked by the back doors. And there was a sound crew there. And I stopped uh, and I had an atta with him. And in my usual imitable Yorkshire style, I told him, uh, you know, they were spoiling the guy. Yes. Yeah. It was too too loud. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and these American guys all laughed at me, and uh, and I, and I just walked away. But I told them what I thought about the music, and I said, you know, and I don't need to tell you. Uh, what I said, I, uh, you know, because I'm not a very complimentary sometimes with my language. Mm. And uh, anyway, I got in my car and I drove away. And uh, but this particular night when we played all this acoustic music, I thought it, I thought it was great. And uh, we did a, we did a couple of gigs. After after that, within the next couple of weeks, we did probably two or three gigs. And I remember, uh, just digressing from this uh, a moment, we did a we did a gig in the Burnley Blues. Can't remember what uh, what club it was, but uh, I do remember it were on road out towards Baker in Lancashire, mm. and. Uh, and we walked in with our acoustic guitars and bull fiddle and and that, and we set up, and we started playing all this American blues music. Uh, Mr. Alveston, the professor, <laughs> uh, he always looked 
I, I think I've told you about him. He always looked like a dandy. <laughs> yes, he did. So I'm a Yankee Doodle dandy. He used to wear these flamboyant jackets. Where the hell he got him from? I said to him, where do you get your clothes from here? And he says, oh, I get them out of, out of these here tea-up shops where they're selling stuff that nobody else wants to, uh, or wants to wear. <laughs> and he had some fantastic, uh, came to some venues wearing some fantastic clothes. And I remember one night, he turned up, he'd been down to see his brother-in-law who lived down on South Coast, who uh, I've told you about before. He was a reporter on the Daily Papers. Yeah. And we used to find all sorts of tidbits uh, out about uh, what he was reporting on, which we won't put up on this programme. <laughs> uh, but he came back this particular w weekend. He'd been away with his wife, Marie, and uh, he came back with his jacket, and it was hand-painted by an artist down mm. there. Mm. And Billy Connolly finished up with one le much later. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we we played at this blues club in Burnley. As I say, I don't know the name at venue or anything. We played there, and we, everything was acoustic which people weren't used to hearing. They were used to hearing the loud rock stuff. Yeah. Same as Cliff's band went out and they blow bloody walls out, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with his band, Slack Alice. And we was playing this all this blues music as it should have been played. Because mm -hmm. the black artists, they very rarely plugged in uh, the guitar. And... Uh, and so you, you got to hear this lovely voice, this lovely black American blues voice. And we did this, and then a couple of weeks later, Cliff Stocker asked me, did we fancy doing the Burnley Blues Club? Mm. The B Burnley Blues Festival, sorry. So we said, yeah, we'll do it. And, and that. And uh, we turned up there. And we was in the middle of this bloody great room and uh, surrounded by people. And we just took our, owing to the success of what we'd done for two or three weeks before this, we fancied doing this acoustic set. Very good. So we set up and played uh, through, through acoustic amps, of course, and uh, just popped a bit through the bit of sound through the PA system and off we went and uh, we played for probably two, two and a half three hours which we were well capable of doing yeah and uh, and it went down a bomb and later on uh, at the night we were due to play up at Barrowing Furnace and uh, at a, a big pub called the Duke of Edinburgh. And it had a piano chained to the wall of this venue. If you think uh, I told you about that. Yeah, you did tell me. Very and, unusual. Yeah. And uh, same as if uh, 
if I'd have been walking near this thing, I'd have given it a wide berth because I never <laughs> trust anything suspended in air. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we played this gig and it went down a bomb. And uh, we stayed the night and it was a hell of a big place with this pub. Any listener who tunes in and they know this pub, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, mm. uh, it looked to me, it was just like one of them places that was haunted. Oh, yeah. Loads loads of rooms upstairs, two or three stories and loads of rooms. And and you just picked a room and picked down for the night, you know. Mm. Anyway, just prior to leaving for this gig, we were stripping the gear down to load in the van. And I always used to like to strip everything down, get it all there, make sure everything's everything's in its place. Yeah. And uh, this old black guy, who was more than likely, I should say, playing at the venue as well, because he used to book a lot of American acts, and 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 since. Uh, I spoke about this thing with you. I rather think it was a guy called Pine Top Perkins. Oh, good name. Uh, yeah, Pine Top Perkins, and he was a blues singer and piano player. Didn't play guitar, I don't think so, anyway. And he said he was a piano player, and he played this uh, lovely rippling-type country blues piano. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway... He said, uh, he says, what do you call your band, you know, in this old smoked-out throaty voice, what do you call your band? And I says, oh, Rag Albert. <laughs> I didn't want to talk to him because I was packing gear. Up. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I, I just said the first thing that come into me, uh, into my head that mm. time, uh, Oh, Rag Albert. Yeah, it could have been London, never. but you said Rag never. Albert instead. <laughs> yeah, and never thinking, never thinking about that name for a band. But it's, what a super name that is, Rag Albert. It doesn't say you're a rock band. It doesn't say you're a country band. Don't tell you hardly anything. I agree, Pete. It's a good name. And uh, And Cliff says, hey, Pete, that's a great name for your band, you know. And I said, what's that? He says, Rag Albert. And I says, bloody hell, yeah, you're right. He's, and, and he said, same, he said, it doesn't tell you anything about you. And, and I says, well, when, when you asked us to do this venue, we came here barely uh, just on our own names sort of thing. Oh, Pete Gardner's it band. Scott Whitley's playing it band, so they knew they were getting a great bass player. Yeah. Alve, uh, Alveston, the Mad Professor's playing, and everybody knew Ian as a, a really fluent uh, acoustic guitar player anyway, and Chris Lewis on drums. And there were, so there were these two old guys, myself and Ian, and these two young guys... <laughs> who were probably in the late 20s, early 30s. Ah, okay. And uh, and if you remember, uh, uh, a few months ago, Scott came on Facebook 
and uh, and I sent him a message and they'd only just got come up on Facebook, really, maybe a year ago, just over a year ago. Yeah. And I said, we, uh, I just sent him a message like, we used to have some good gigs, didn't we, Scott? And he, and he came back with this, well, it was a baptism of fire. Uh-huh. Baptism of fire, which I took as a com- compliment because, in a way, it was. Mm. Because uh, if I gave them a key, they were lucky, and uh, and I'd just count the, I'd just count them in. Yeah. And then uh, and then Scott'd sing a song, and he he would just count us in and uh, and that and everything was flying. Sounds it great. Was completely off the cuff. Yeah. We were playing. So these guys were about twenty years younger than you, Pete, were they? Oh yeah. Yeah. They were over over twenty years younger, probably. Yeah, they're probably twenty five, nearly thirty years younger than us, and oh, I well. thought. How fantastic these young musicians were that could that could listen actually listen to the music mm-hmm. and and play the right stuff for what you were playing and we were doing all this hillbilly stuff and and Scott knew a bit of hillbilly stuff and this and this other music like virgin on jazz mm. uh, but in uh, sort of ninth chords and sixth and stuff like this. And we used to bluff our way through this, but it sounded bloody great. Yeah. And we went up to Barrowing Furnace and did the same sort of set. Not in that order, because we never wrote anything down. <laughs> it was just how it, how it came out of your head, Bernie. It, it, it was, to me, it was just something... That uh, Andy Nutter, who plays, who played congas, you've heard me talk about Andy. Yeah, he's on your last Andy. episode. On, on the yeah, last. I, I uh, mentioned Andy. Andy Nutter once said to me, he says, "You know, Pete, he says, I love that band. He says everybody played what they wanted it, within the context of the song, mm. and and he says, and it was." just so free to play like that yeah and and i mean to say it's very rare that you get that coming into music because most most bands as you know you play a bum note and they all stare at you (laughs) and wish you were dead (laughs) i know and and i used to think oh bollocks do it that that bum note's gone in a second Mm. been a musician yourself bernie you'll understand what i'm saying yeah and anybody out there who's played in a band it's so regimental that you play the song the same every time we didn't do that we just and if we uh same as many a time ian would just start off with a solo and we just let him free. We didn't join in. Mm. We just let him free and he'd be playing some fantastic stuff on this acoustic guitar that he had, this Takamine. And uh, and then after it had gone through, say, 24 bars yeah, uh, or uh, 36 bars, 
we'd start coming in with the music. Chris would come in with the drums and the brushes on the drums. And this thing would, would we didn't know what the hell it were. No. And I don't suppose Al Veston did either. <laughs> but it would build up into something. And then probably Ian's thinking, well, what can I sing to this? Oh, I got you. Yeah. And it starts, and it, and it starts singing, you know. That's... I went down to the crossroad, oh. you know, and, and things like this. <laughs> and that's how that music developed. And, and to me, I think some of the finest music that I've ever played came out of that, mm. you know. Mm. I know what you so, mean. But anyway, that's how Rag Albert started. And, it, and it, we carried on doing that sort of thing for maybe a few months and then it fizzled out because yeah. probably Chris had ideas on playing drums in a, in a Beatles uh, band, which he was a very big fan of, was Chris. Mm. And, uh, and also maybe Scott went with him and he'd be playing with people like Danny Handley. Yeah. And, uh, and that, you know, and so, and we all went our separate ways and then we'd join up at some later, later stage. Yeah. And, um, Pete, just a question on when you were playing like you were, you were kind of improvising uh, in a way, weren't you? And, and, oh yeah. And what was your audience? Were they all standing up or sitting down having drinks? Or how how did well, that look? In the uh, in the Burnley Blues Club thing that I told you that was on Baker Road, mm. it might have been Halifax Road, uh, but it it was the way through Baker, which led through to Halifax. So it might have been Halifax Road. I don't know. But anyway, uh, that audience was a seated audience. Mm-hmm. But we got a hell of a good response from them. I think we played. I think we played again later before we actually split up. But the uh, Burnley Blues Festival was people moving from uh, from us, uh, who we hadn't a name, the nameless band at that <laughs> time. Till this black guy asked us what our name was, and we decided that. Uh, Rag Albert was going to be the name of the band. Good choice. <laughs> and what they do, the, the the punters who were there, they came from all over the bloody country, Bernie. Some of them from London and and even south of London and Scotland and and that. And they come down, and all these artists were selling their albums uh, and that. Yeah. Which they, which they do, and they were moving from say one gig like watching us, they'd watch us for a while and then they'd move and see what else we're going on uh, somewhere else. Yeah, Germany. yeah, yeah. Interesting, mm. interesting. So that's uh, like how uh, Rag Albert uh, came, came about. to uh, its demise when we split up. I wonder if it's... it's do, do you think it might be fun, Pete, to do an acoustic session with some of your friends that are still alive? And you could call, you could go under the name of Rag Albert. Well, uh, I don't know. As you know, I can't play at the moment because uh, I should have had a uh, operation for carpal tunnel. Yeah, I've got carpal tunnel syndrome in both hands, mm. and it stops me from playing. I haven't played guitar for a couple of years now, and uh, 
They just sat there at the guitars up in the loft. But it is, I think, I think if I did it again, I would like to get some, some, uh, I don't know whether I'd like to get some musicians around me or not. I might just, uh, because when I write a, when I write a song, I I have a thing in my mind that I'm just doing it on my own. I'm a, a lonesome cowboy sort of thing. I know. And uh, and I just want it to play like that. If if you can come across if you can come across young, young some young musicians, they could uh, probably add their own thing, or they, or they might be too entrenched in a like a punk rock style. Thing like some some of the young bands are around here mm. in Barnoldswick, but I, I came up in a year of earning which I think was so interesting, and how I met Chris Lewis, uh, the drummer, he was playing in a band with some guys about twenty years old, and they were playing on a car park, right, and. Uh, and I went, uh, I, I knew a bit of Leonard Skinner's sort of music and they were on the verge of playing this type of thing. Uh, there was a young guy in there, a good guitarist, who became a good friend of mine, uh, half my age, played a great guitar and he, he was he was another young guy who, who uh, loved trying different kinds of music out and there was as I say there was Chris and then Chris later on brought Scott Whitley to the band okay I've had a hell of a lot of good musicians through bands that I've put it together. sounds like it sounds you like know, it and, uh, I've been very very lucky and I, uh, I, I had a guy called Pete Edelston who used to play with Marty Wilde's band he played with me for quite a while mm. And then I had uh, Tony Spencer Millage, or Shug as he was known, another great bass player. And uh, and he uh, used to play in a band with a guy, would you believe, his name was, it was a drummer, Harry the Bastard. <laughs> 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 I'm forced to laugh when I, <laughs> when I remember him, but Harry, yeah. Harry the Bastard, I never knew his last name. Mm. Even his first name might not have been his right name. Yeah. But uh, it was a hell of a good drummer. And uh, Tony, Tony Millage, Tony Spencer Millage, who we call Sugar, he, he, he played with quite a lot of great, uh, you know, rock bands, some of them very uh, bit heavy, mm. on heavy side. Mm. But he was such a talented player. And, and I remember doing a gig in Todmond in Lancashire. Yeah. In a pub, and, and he brought this pianist along with him. And uh, and he says, is it all right if uh, if this guy plays with you? He said, I brought him along. He says, he's a good pianist. And we were out a distance of earshot where the... I said, oh, no, I'm not bothered a piano, about a piano. But I were interested in, if somebody can play, let them play. Mm. And so this guy was called Nick Cornell. 
And what a fantastic player he was. He could play the rock style and the country style. Yeah. And, uh, and out of that became another band. And, uh, and as Chris Lewis had moved on and done other things, I went back to a young, a young drummer who I'd used for many a year. I think he were about 17 years old the first time I used him. And, and, you know, and I was old enough to be his father. Yeah. And uh, he probably wouldn't have liked that, but no. uh, I was old enough to be his father. <laughs> In fact, his, his father's a very good friend of mine, and he's the same age as me, 80, 80 year old. Wow. Anyway, I brought, I brought young Mick in, and, he's, uh, and he was very, very, very reluctant to, to come into this band, because he said, I'm not enough experience, I'm not the same calibre as you guys, you know. Yeah. And I says, don't be so daft, because I said, you're a great drummer, you know, and he was school of music taught. And I, and I persuaded him to come into this band. And, uh, and of course, we called it Rag Albert. Uh-huh. For a start, just for a, a few gigs. So that, in a way, that is your sort of publicity to get punters to come to you. Yeah, it would. would well, you know, when these punters came to see us, they were hearing an all different kind of music. With Nick Cornell being a, a very, very versatile country piano player, something like Floyd Kramer, and... Shug, who could play, who his favourite musicians mostly were like Bob Dylan and mm. people on the periphery of of country music. Yeah. So uh, they we formed this band and called it uh, Rag Albert for a, for a few months. Well, we got some punters coming in to see us, mm -hmm. and I could. I could go along to these venues, phone these venues up, and I had a, I had by this time a very good reputation for coming with some good bands. Okay. They knew they were going to get, a, you know, four or five hours music out of us in a night. Which was great, five hours. Um, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was great, and, and bands were making it at that time probably... 100 quid a night for a five-piece band. And we were going along and getting up to 200 quid, you know, mm. because we didn't play two 40-minute spots. We started playing at 8 o'clock and it was midnight when we finished. Yeah. You know, and we just kept playing. We didn't have beer breaks or anything like that. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and this, this outfit with... Uh, Oh, I brought Ian Alveston into it as well, which uh, I don't know whether Tony uh, was probably very happy with uh, or, or Nick Cornwell, Cornwell. but we, we brought Ian in because he's a very, very clever guitar player. There's no doubt about it, and he knew a lot of songs, and so that 
this band, after a few weeks, we were gigging and making pretty reasonable money, probably nearly twice as much as the, any other bands were making at, mm. at that time, which is bugger all when you think about it. But we didn't do it for the money. It was just like, well, I've, I've, if I have enough money for a few beers and enough yeah. to, to put some petrol in tank and get to gig, that, you know, that's yeah. uh, great. You didn't do it for money. It, were, it was pure and simply love of playing music. Yeah, of course. And, and, and the challenge of going on stage and doing it well you know, and, and succeeding and the feedback from the audience, it's a great feeling, isn't it? Oh, it, you know, you, you can't, it gets into your blood. You can't explain it. Mm. Uh, it it's just a, a feeling that you get. And, and when you have got a great bass player and a great drummer sat at back of you, kicking your arse along. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and their gel, which uh, Tony Spencer did with Mick Beckwith, and he said Mick Beckwith was the best drummer he'd, he'd ever played with. Yeah. And, he'd, and you know, and they, they, these guys were well-worn musicians. They played with everybody. I know, it sounds like you know, they and were. And all the festivals and everything, Bernie. Mm. And, and like I said about the baptism of fire coming from Scott, uh, we went th every time we played. We played. We went through a baptism of fire every time we played because we'd no set list. I know. I I remember we that comment, set. Pete. And uh, we'd probably we'd probably just start off with a nice steady steady song by Leonard Skinner. Well, they call me the breeze, and I keep blowing down the road. Oh, yeah, they call me the breeze because mm. I keep blowing down the road. And it would be nice and steady and you could get some. You, you, you had that 2-4 thump on on the bass and the bass drum kicked that along with the same 2-4 bass, uh, bass drum mm. and, uh, and Nick there tinkling in the back with a, playing a beautiful piano or he coming with a with the Ammon C3 organ mm. uh, sound and and you just you was in awe yeah. of these people you was in awe of them and I learned so much off these people that came in, in and out of bands with me uh, you know it, uh, I don't use American phrase, phrases like awesome no. but I was in awe of these musicians, and I learned such a lot of them, off them. Mm. And uh, we played uh, with that format for for a, a few months till we got an audience sort of thing, mm. and we were playing in pubs and clubs and that sort of thing. And uh, and we decided on a name change. Oh, well, surprisingly, as as sugared always been uh played he'd played in every rock band he played in everything actually they were just such a versatile player and he was a big fan of hank williams mm -hmm. and uh we came up with with the name for the band 
Cheating Hearts. Oh, yes, I remember you telling me that. So you dropped the rag, Albert, and went to Cheating Hearts. Cheating. Yeah, cheating. There was no G in it. It was just cheating and and whatever they call a comma after the N. Because we could then start with any type of music. Mm. With a name like Cheating Arts, which we did, and we were playing all this Dylan stuff and Leonard Skinner and anything that anybody could come up with. And uh, Nick, although he wasn't uh, a fantastic singer, he was he was quite a good singer, and he would come with some amazing songs. Yeah. To do. Yeah. You know, a verse like this, Bernie. She was standing in the corner when I came home last night. She had a Bible in her left hand and a rolling pin in her right. She said, I'm so tired of you coming home with whiskey on your breath. If you don't start listening to me, boy, I'm going to beat you half to death. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> and then we'd all join in with this chorus. Well, give me one more last chance. Before we say goodbye, you know, and yeah, and and these songs nobody had ever heard. We were making them up. Oh, we were picking songs up, and Nick would come along with these songs that type of music he were listening to, and uh, and and we were doing this Dylan stuff, and we we did it in a really good way. Anyway, uh, after a while. Uh, Ian Alveston, who uh, had a crazy temper at Ian, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he he packed in one night. He packed in and uh, and that, which I think was a move that Shug, Tony Spencer Millage, uh, and Nick Cornell had been waiting for. Okay. And they brought a guy in uh, called Sean Watson, a left-handed guitar player. And this guy knew knew all the stuff, James Brown stuff. Oh, brilliant. So so, so this band, the, 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 the music that uh, Cheating Hearts were playing was such a hell of a mixture. Mm-hmm. You know, it could come in with these lovely Stevie Wonder songs, could Sean and James Brown type stuff. <clears throat> and mixed in with all the other stuff that we was doing, it was such a... You'd think we'd thrown old songs in a bloody cement mixer and it was going round and we were just picking one out and playing it. Yeah. It was such a diverse type of music that we were playing. Mm. Sounds most enjoyable. Um, Pete, am I right in saying, was this the 70s, 80s? This would be the 80s. In the 80s, yeah. I can't remember when because there was so much much floating about. We'd we'd have a band for a few months and then somebody would be going, uh, going playing with somebody else. I remember, I remember... One one night, 
one of the band members, which I won't, I won't mention because uh, it didn't write, mm. but one of the band men- members, and maybe two of them even, uh, went off to Holland or Belgium or somewhere playing with the glitter band. Oh, yes, you told me about this. I told you about that, and and that didn't go down well with me. We've been Gary Glitter, because this thing had come up with Gary Glitter, interfering with children and one thing or another, and I I don't go for that sort of thing. And so I bloody sacked him. Mm, mm. Uh, And it, it was a silly thing to do, but I thought, you you can go off and play with who, who the hell you like, but don't insult me by going away and playing with Gary Glitter's band. Yeah, and with not Gary telling Glitter. you. Yeah. You know, and and it was, to me, it was more a principle. And I don't think anybody knows knows me better than you do, Bernie. No. You know. No, exactly. And uh, I think this so is... that was the demise of, of those. Mm. And... Uh, and as I say, we, we we played this gig as uh, as cheating arts for maybe a couple of years and maybe a, maybe a little bit longer. I can't remember. And uh, anyway, I I, uh, I wanted to do other things, so I left. Yeah. And uh, and cause I left Mick back with the drummer. He left as well. Mm. Yeah, it's and, a shame uh, it happens, isn't it? Yeah, the the you know there was no animosity or anything. No, just we just you know you weren't uh, you know balling your fists up at them and and uh, getting into fights or, or arguments. No, and uh, and you all was, you all had your day jobs. Pete, one was a teacher. You were uh, presumably driving trucks or or bull, yeah, bulldozers. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, and uh, and so what happened? I I quit that band and, and Mick followed me. Mm. I think m- maybe the same night or the week after, and he came to see me, and he says, "I've had an idea, Pete. Would you would you like to hear me out?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm willing to listen to anything," and. Uh, what we did, we formed a band with a we formed a, a band with with a guy I know, a very very good guitar player, Tony Mitchell, they called him, mm. and uh, and this guy could uh, play anything, and he played it well. Yeah. Uh, so I I rang Tony up and and that we fiddled about for week after week after week trying. Bass players, because as you know, a, a drummer likes to pick his own bass player. And uh, we had a guy from Lancaster called John, who was a good candidate for this position as playing band, and we was going to call ourselves Rag Albert. Right. So we could get a lot of punters up <laughs> again, because... Hearing the the name Rag Albert, oh, it's Gardner. He always puts a good band together, does Gardner. Yeah. And uh, oh well, we've got Mick who was in the last band, Dirty Dern, and that. And and then we got Tony Mitchell, of course, this 
playing guitarist. There was a, a GP, a general practitioner, mm. and uh, spoke very, very well, you know. He oh. came from down south somewhere and uh, spoke very, very well. I couldn't understand him, spoke that well. <laughs> And, uh, what and, did he think to your accent, Pete? Did he ever comment? Well, he'd, he'd known me from 30 years before. Of course, we played in a band 30 years before. Good That's God. why he'd been into it. He'd finished living down south and split up from his wife, and he came back up up to Coney in Lancashire. Mm. And he'd gone into a music shop, and he's asking, he's asking at music shop, uh, what so and so doing? Well, the they didn't know half the people they were asking about because it had gone beyond their ear. But as soon as it says, what's Pete Gardner doing? Oh, him. He's <laughs> dead, you know. Uh, one scene, never forget. The <laughs> yeah. Yorkshireman, uh, you know. And uh, and we fiddled about for quite a few weeks and we eventually got an headmaster for a bass player. Oh, yeah, the one that you've recently connected up with on Facebook. Uh, no, I am connected up with him, Bernie. Oh, know. right. I'm connected up to somebody else, probably, but not him. Uh, no, John and me didn't get on too well. Mm. Uh, big guy, about six foot four. And he, he was a bass player, and he was very, very good. And, and Mick said, he, yeah, he's, he's okay, I can play with this guy. And, and Mick would talk to him and tell him what he wanted, beat-wise and everything, so that so that it, it punched along. Yeah. And uh, so we uh, we started that band and uh, one weekend, and we were out gigging the next weekend. I've been I've been not telephoned to some people. Mm. Oh yeah. We, as soon as Gardner went up phone, well, they know he had a good band. That's great. That's a reputation that I had, Bernie. Mm. And uh, they knew that whenever I formed a band, I would be dragging some good musicians about with me. Yeah, interesting. And so, so we put this Rag Albert together again. <laughs> and uh, with John Uffordine playing bass. And what Mick's idea were, and I went along with him, was the fact that he says, let's do all old songs. Under the moon of love, da-da-da-da. Let's go for a little walk, da-da-da-da. Under the moon of love. And we could all sing together, do you see? But I was doing the lead vocals. And I thought, there's more to this band than what's meeting the eye at this time. Mm. And I says, and so we we put, we played in an old barn to put this band together. My brother-in-law, Harry, he, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. he had a barn. And uh, we would clear the bales away, put the PA system up and go into this. And, and so at least we had a show on the road. And then after about three weeks, I said, why don't you bring some songs along? And I'd never heard any of them sing. Right. Bring a song along that suits your voice, or bring two, and we'll rehearse it. Mm. And same with Tony Mitchell, and same with Mick Beckwith. Well, Mick brought some songs along, opened his mouth, 
Jesus Christ, you were best singer, you were <laughs> best singer in band. Right. You were fantastic, fantastic singer, were Mick, and played all the drums right and, and everything at the right volume. Mm. And uh, John Uffedine came along with, with, with songs and, and that, and we built this thing up so we could play about seven hours. Right, crikey, seven yeah. hours. Blimey, I've never contemplated doing seven hours before. Well, well, I was always used to playing four or five hours. Mm. And anyway, with these three guys singing as well, and we were all doing harmonies, and everything we, d- we did, everything we played was strictly like the record. Yeah. Like, that'll be the day. You know, and... Yeah. Uh, and everything was mimicked to perfection. Mm. Tony brought a brought a little machine along that he had, and it, and it looked like a bloody ruler to me. You know, a tape ruler that you buy. There a builder has. Yeah, it looked like that to me. With a few buttons on. And what Tony could do could put a mini disc in this machine, and he could slow it down without losing the tone of the note. Because, as you know, you get... Mm-hmm. But you didn't get that. No. You get the actual true note of what what was coming through. So Tony was able to listen to this and grab every, grab every note and play everything exactly as the record. Good God. Yeah. Mm. And, and this is what we did. And uh, we even slipped a couple of shadows numbers in and stuff like that, so that. And then, and then, as things progressed, John Upperdine, the bass player, could play some piano. Right. So he'd bring something along and and he'd play the piano to it. And. And then we hadn't a bass player, so I would put the guitar down and play bass because I'd played bass in several bands. Not not a great player out of that, don't get me wrong, Bernie, but I, I knew what I was playing. Yeah. So I'd play bass when uh, John Uffordine was playing the keyboard. Mm. And uh, and Tony put a, a synthesizer pickup, some sort of synthesizer pickup on his guitar on his Stratocaster, and he, he could switch his amp over, and if it was if there was a trumpet solo in in on the record, yeah. Tony would play would play the guitar notes, everything, and it would come out sounding like a trumpet. Crikey, yeah. That's... What what they call these things, I've no idea. But no. It had, it had about three hundred different instruments on it. Mm. And uh, and he had a foot switch, and he could switch from one thing to another. A very intelligent fellow, were Tony. Yeah, it sounds like he was. We've been a, you know, been a doctor, or, uh, whatever you call them. Practicing, practicing. Uh, yeah. And uh, so we was going to places. People, people were thinking they were coming up, to, coming up to us. And I remember one night a guy come up to me and says, well, I've never heard a bloody load of phonies like you lot. <laughs> and I said, oh. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're bloody miming to everything. Yeah. 
Yeah, he thought we he thought we were playing it because sure, it was so exact. It, yeah, but we were miming. Mm. And if if a song, you know, I, I mean to say I'm a songwriter myself, Bernie, but I've been doing it so long, I've not so much experience about it. But I have written some damn good songs. But what what I cannot do, like the people like Neil Sedaka and. Carol King and all these people did in the Brill Buildings in New York, where they could write your life story in, in one minute, 99 seconds. Yeah, I remember you saying that, which, Pete. Yeah, which was all, all how, how long the tape would last. Mm. And they had, to do, they had to do it within about five seconds of the end of the tape, and the whole song was down. Yeah. And I can't do that. I've tried to. I've tried to do write songs, you know, write your love life and and that. Oh, Carol, I am but a fool, mm. darling. I love you, and though you do, do, do. Um, you know, bam, 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 all these backing vocals in, and it lasted one minute ninety nine seconds, <laughs> fifty nine seconds, or something like that. All these songs are. Uh, you know, uh, Neil Diamond and that, they were all writing these lovely songs. Yeah. But I could never do that. But we, yeah. we were playing all these. Yeah. And got accused of miming. I know. What, what an insult. But I suppose... Well, could you, could you call it an insult? I don't know. I mean, I mean to say this, people do say that mimicry, when you mimic somebody... Uh, it's the peak of admiration or mm. whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But we all played these songs uh, to the, the... They might have lasted a few seconds longer if we, you know, if the beat was a little bit slower. Because mm. rock and roll beats 72 beats a minute, as you know. Uh, and yeah, uh, you, you told me that. I didn't know that before. <laughs> yeah, 72 beats a minute, heartbeat, they yeah. call it. And uh, I'm hearing a few clicks and pops, Pete. Are you grabbing something? Um, ah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, and so this band was very successful and we were doing so well. I, I went down a different route to where, we were, to where we'd played. Mm. We'd played a, a few gigs in pubs and uh, one or two working men's clubs, but I changed tack altogether. And I decided to go into playing in golf clubs. Mm. Not that I have anything against golfers, but by saying that golfers are probably a bit more respectful. Uh, I hope I don't get my balls chewed off for this. <laughs> probably a bit more respectful than, yeah. than a bloke who throws 10 pints down his neck in a night. Mm. Or... In a club, hey, you can't sit there. I've been sitting there twenty-five years. Oh. If, if somebody pinches the bloody seat, yeah. But decided to go and play. And the first golf club uh, that I we played in was Silsden Golf Club near Keithley mm. in Yorkshire, and. And we got £400 for that gig. That's great. Which which 
all these other bands have probably progressed a bit and they were earning 150 quid. Mm. Where where we were going, we went into this golf club and drew 400 quid and we were worth it, Bernie. Yeah. We were worth it. Same as uh, I never tried ripping anybody off. But the great thing about this, playing in golf clubs, when you think about it, is they invite clubs from somewhere else out in Yorkshire somewhere, West Yorkshire or South Yorkshire or over on the East Coast to to, uh, come and play some sort of competition with them. Mm. So luckily enough, on this night that we played Silsden uh, Golf Club, they had a golf club from York that they'd done a competition with. So, as we're packing up at the end of the night, a guy comes a guy comes to me because I, I was Spokes more person. or less did up, did up talking, you know. <laughs> that is surprising. Believe, I know, I know. I did all the talking. I find it hard to believe, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's sarcastic. <laughs> but anyway... Which was a good thing, really. This guy came up to me and he says, uh, I'm from uh, York, such and such a golf club in York. And I said, yeah, whereabouts is it? And he, he starts to, oh, I said, yeah, I know where it is. We've been a truck driver. Mm. So he, I, I says, give me your telephone number and I'll give you a ring over rest of the weekend, uh, early next week. So I got his telephone number and... Uh, and he says, uh, how much do you charge? And I says, oh, 500 quid. And he never even coughed uh, That's amazing. or anything at like that. No, that is incredible. So I thought I, I should have asked him for six. Mm. Being a Yorkshireman, you know, tighter than two coats <laughs> of bloody pain. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we went and did this gig for a great price. And... And he says, oh, I've told a mate of mine about all about you guys. He's coming to see you tonight. He's, he's from another golf club. <laughs> so this is what used to happen. You used to go to a golf club and, and they'd be, be having a bit of a competition with another golf club from somewhere else, Seberidlington mm. or, or uh, Selby or out near all somewhere like that. So... We were picking some good gigs up and we were picking 600 quid a night up. Incredible. In the 90s, uh, that's pretty good. You know, and, but you had to keep it a bit quiet. You didn't broadcast it because you'd think, well, these, these buggers with these rock bands will go in and that. But the thing is, you were, you were singing these songs to your own age group. Mm. If you get what I mean. I do, yeah. The golf players. Which went, which, you know, like Shawadi Wadi, Under the Moon of Love and stuff like that. Yeah. I thought you were a taxi driver, that bloke, that Shawadi Wadi. <laughs> uh, careful, careful, Pete. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> you know me. Live, live dangerously and die young <laughs> It hasn't worked yet. No. Pete, I'm going to just say something, and it's really for the reason that um, my phone has been showing me that my battery is getting weaker and weaker, and 10 minutes ago it said I've got 10% left. So if it suddenly goes off, 
is there anything you'd like to say now that would uh, kind of kind of round things off or do you want to keep going a bit more well uh if you're bloody sure up i'll get on we <laughs> okay. uh, right <laughs> uh, so that's what we continue to do mm. and we was playing in these golf clubs earning good money and then all of a sudden it came in where uh people out there some of them might remember that uh doctors were in uh you know they were, were in great need at that time and mm. they could work Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and earn about a thousand quid. So our Tony Mitchell, uh, he decided to leave mm. and uh, earn this th thousand quid in three nights. Okay. And uh, being a doctor, it'll be two thousand to three thousand now. But anyway, the the band, because uh, he left. We needed another guitar player, and I hadn't time, and I had other plans anyway, mm. which was when uh, I went out to America again, and uh, and uh, and also to uh, Austria and Switzerland and Germany. Yeah, uh, and uh, so that was sort of the demise of the third or else forge. Wow. generation of Rag Albert. Yeah, that is yeah. ever so interesting, Pete. It reminded me a little bit about the show band that I was in because we used to get the occasional gig uh, that paid very well. And, you know, and uh, we were able to save quite a bit of money because we all had day jobs. And, and um, yeah. but it's very satisfying to get that kind of opportunity. And, you know, and... And after a while, the the conservative clubs and the British Legion clubs, they're okay, but but then a golf club is something different, isn't it? The people are very relaxed, and and there's a bit of money, you know, the people that play golf, yeah, uh, and they don't mind paying paying you know much more, twice as much, that, perhaps. That's right. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, to say same as New Year's Eve, we I think uh, two or three years that we were going, I think we were pulling about anything up to 1500 quid for new year's eve mm. but we always put on a good show yeah it was always very good and then just to end this thing bernie we we, we all went our separate ways mm. and uh and then that's more or less the end of the story but i'll come back to you with another thing uh maybe tomorrow uh, about where I resurrected Rag Albert as a two-piece. Wow. With the mad professor and myself. <laughs> so that's so, bass, bass and... Anyway, I hope, I hope you've enjoyed this chat, Bernie, and I uh, hope your, your listeners enjoy it, and we'll, we'll be back. I have a few more stories to tell you yet. That would be great, Pete, and I'll keep, I'll keep the microphone ready because uh, everything so far has been interesting it's gone down well and um i'm sure what you've got to tell will also go down well we've just done an hour and 15 which is great and um pete as this is like the bonus um bonus uh, episode because your seven uh, episodes have been you know the actual main uh, podcast uh, series but the bonus 
can be as long or as short. We can divide it up into two half hours or two 45 minutes or two hours even. We can, you know, we can keep going. Well, it, it, it's entirely up to you, Bernie. I mean, to say I've only heard the first one, I haven't <laughs> heard anymore. I don't like listening to myself. No, I know what you mean. But I just hope that your listeners do. Yeah. It's like I said about, uh, uh, about you, when I, when it, when I've said things to you, you know, and I've said like, keep it simple, Bernie. Da, 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 da. Mm. You know, I don't like, I don't like gimmicks, uh, gimmicks. Sort of shirts with with fluffy sleeves or fluffy collars, you know. And I'm same, I'm same with me, you know, with anything I do with me when I record a song. I don't, uh, I don't try to fancy it up or anything. I try to keep it straight and clean and yeah. Close to the bone. No, great, Pete. No, it's uh, it's it's your uh, it's your forte that, and um, you do it well. And um, I've been enjoying actually making what they call trailers, like you know, you're you're uh, letting people know what's coming in two days' time and that kind of thing. I've enjoyed that because it puts a discipline on you, um, and it says to you, you've only got sixty seconds, and so you try and. F- do what you can in 60 seconds to not overdo it and say too much too quickly, but give the main points. And um, that's uh, that's something that we, we did together just a few weeks ago. Do you remember we did a, a trailer? Yeah. And I used what yeah. you said on my, on my uh, trailer. So, uh, great. I look forward to that, Pete. I'm going to bring this one to a close because the battery is about to run out and then we'll lose sight of each other. And, of course... It's no good talking. That's a good thing, Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> I hope your listeners enjoy uh, that. Thank you, Pete. Well, and uh, you're coming in nice and strong, as you can see. Um, yeah. Uh, Volume-wise. and. Uh, me phone, Bernie. Okay. Cheers, Pete. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. When you see me what you see, you know what you'll get I ain't always right, but I ain't never been wrong yet I'm always fighting on the side of the underdog these days And I see no reason now why I should change my way There really is no other way for me to be And it'll take more than dying in death To kill me I am what I am, but I ain't what I used to be But you know exactly what you've got when you get me Tell it like it is, and if you don't like that, well, it's too bad. I never was good after being your diplomat. I never lost my direction or wound up on your dead end street. It'll take more than dying and death to kill me. Don't like the things I say, well you can kiss my ass 
I'm tired of your negativity, go out and eat some grass. You'll never see the years to do the things I've done. Even the fire and the fuel, luck out the sun. Never travel down the rocky roads I've been Or witness even a fraction of the things I've seen Now you take delight in climbing upon your high horse And now you climb so high with those short legs of yours Cast me out on a cold, dark, icy sea Cross the gate, bold and dying in death To kill me Cross the gate, bold and dying in death To kill me
despair of thought But the times ahead With life to the full I should soon be dead Restless hearts Reckless days Disbelieving Feckless ways We were crazy back then A little hasty back then Our minds were hasty back then We were just a little crazy back then were silver, our days were gold, never believing what we've been told. We were wild, loving free, assured of our own ability. We were crazy back then, Our minds were hazy back then Yeah, we were just a little crazy back then You out there, you're only young So climb the ladders, every rung Don't look down, don't look around They're out to bleed you dry Tax you to death when you're living Then they tax you when you die They're economical with the truth They're blatant with the lie And if they keep on taking The water from the well Well, well, well Well Now they rob you of your old age And any other form of wealth By sneaky backdoor taxes And they postcoded your health Wouldn't it be good if they could look you in the eye 
And if they keep on taking the water from the well Well, well, well Well, well, well It's gonna run dry And if you think Dick Turpin's dead Well, you better think again Cause it sure ain't Robin Hood That's living next door at number 10 Counting like a jackal Snake slower than the snake Praying like the mantis Monitors each move you make There's no way to escape The spies in the sky And if you keep on taking Water from the well Well, well, well Well, well, well Could run dry And if you think Dick Turpin's dead Well, you better think again And it sure ain't Robin Hood That's living next door At number 10 Coming like the jackal Crawls lower than the snake They're praying like the mantis Monitors each move you make You cannot escape The spies in the sky And if you keep on taking The water from the well Well, well I got three fingers of whiskey, gonna drink it right here. Some guy just got hit, he spark out like a light. They're all raising hell, go town tonight. Smoke hangs to the ceiling. There's beer on the floor And a vision of beauty She just walked through the door There old and hollering As she walked slowly by A cavalli in her step And a glint in her eye Next morning they'll wake up hungover and poor. They spent their last dollar on old Alice 
the horn Cause they fall through the brain And they can't have the stand And according in the storm is The motto of a man Cause they can't see the sense And they'll never see the light They're always in hell guy on the piano, he's playing like hell, a selection of tunes from the Liberty Bell, the woman that's singing well, she's way past her prime. Sheriff's sweep so dust round the floor of his cell. His jail will be full tonight, he knows only too well. With only a blanket to sleep on the floor, can see out to the street. To the cracks in the door And you wish you were sleeping In a big feather bed Next to a warm woman Soft bosom for your head Instead you'll wake up Stiff bent and sore But come the next weekend You'll be back for some more Cause they're always in hell town tonight Cause they'll never see sense And they'll never see the light Nothing. Mm -hmm.